Welcome to Money Stories with LDT. I'm Linda Davis-Taylor, and this is A Lesson in the Art of Giving with Mary Spellman. But I don't think it's true that you have to have billions in order to contribute, but we're not doing a good job of helping people understand whether you want to call it philanthropy or giving, general, however you want to refer to it, how do we teach people that there are ways to contribute that is meaningful? I am so excited to be joined today by Mary Spellman, the executive director of the Fletcher Jones Foundation. This is a foundation that supports colleges and universities in California and is governed by a board of trustees that draws from the high ranks of business, law, finance, banking, education, and government. Mary has two decades of senior leadership experience in higher education. In fact, before joining Fletcher Jones, she served as the Dean of Students at Claremont McKenna College, Sarah Lawrence College, and St. Mary's College of California, as well as in student activities and student affairs leadership positions at Dickinson College and Mount St. Mary's College. Join us as Mary dispels myths associated with charitable giving and suggests simple ways to have an impact through your philanthropy. It's great to have you today, Mary. Thank you, Linda. It's great to be here. Well, Mary, I can't imagine a better person to join our Money Stories conversation than you, an amazing philanthropic leader in California, and of course, with extensive background as an educator. And I know you, of course, as just a really wise woman. So I really look forward to this conversation with you about this important topic of money. So we call our series Money Stories. And one of the things I'd like to do to start our conversation is just to ask you to reflect on as a young woman or even a young girl, did you have parents or did your family talk to you about personal finance when you were growing up? And if they did, What do you recall about the conversation? And if they didn't explicitly, how do you think you learned Mm -hmm. as a young person? Yeah, that's a a great question. And when when I think about it, I don't think my parents ever sat me down and said, let's talk about personal finance. But they certainly gave me many lessons around money and finance. First, you should know that my parents, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. I never felt like I was poor, but we definitely lived paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, my parents were very creative about how they gave us a good life. So some of the lessons they taught us um, about finances involved. So how do you like, how do you get what you want? Right. So my parents were very much, you know, they said, look, we have a budget and we can they afford- actually said that. Yeah. So when we would buy clothes, when we buy clothes for school, they'd say, you know, I grew up, I'm a little, you know, older than, (laughs) uh, you know, in the time when um, designer jeans were just the thing, Jordache jeans were the thing and everybody wanted them and they were way out of our price range. And my parents said, look, we can afford Levi's. We can afford to go to Mervyn's, the equivalent of Kohl's today. Right. Um, If you want something more than that, you're going to have to to pay for it yourself. So you're going to have to figure out how you'll do that. And my siblings and I um, all had different ways that we earned money. My brother was on a paper route and he, he delivered things for real estate agents. My sister and I babysat. From a very young age, we, we were taught, I don't know if it was intentionally, but certainly a really great message about the value of money. Because if I, I had to work 
a lot of hours to afford a pair of Jordache jeans. Versus Time was literally money for you. Literally, absolutely. My parents also very early said, you should have a bank account. So when we were old enough to sign for a bank account, we went to the bank. My parents didn't open a bank account for us. They took us and we opened our own bank account and we put in portions of our money into the bank account that we earned. Um, so those were some of the early ones. The other one I sort of learned, and eventually my parents talked to us about it, but you know, I mentioned that we live paycheck to paycheck. And my dad and mom had a credit card, but we very rarely used it. And then we went through a really bad time financially. My dad lost his job and he had to start using the credit card to pay for basic expenses. And I remember my father breaking down one day because he received the credit card bill and we literally didn't have the money to pay for it. And that's where my parents talked to us about, we have a credit card for emergencies and you should be paying your credit card off monthly. You use the credit card for emergencies when the refrigerator breaks and you have to buy a new refrigerator so you can pay it off over time because you don't have it, but you don't use it for your, your basic necessities. And that to this day remains my policy of how I use a credit card. My dad's like, look, the most expensive loan you can have is a credit card. So that's not your, you know, and so many people make the mistake of using a credit card as to, to absolutely, you know, fund their lifestyle. Um, and they don't understand that when, you know, when something happens like losing a job, you might not be able to even make the minimum payments on a long debt that you've acquired. Well, it seems like the powerful lessons that came perhaps from challenging times yeah. were so tangibly. And, and what we talk about today is the basics. What does it mean to earn? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to budget? Yeah. Credit card, all of those lessons that we might imagine, and you had it right there growing up. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then in school, do you, you had this phenomenal, really, uh, background and training from your parents and from your real life. Did you recall ever covering these topics any time in your school? life, your actual education life? There were continued lessons from my parents, but not actually from the college, um, which after, you know, the career I had in higher education, it's actually really sad that here we are preparing students for, for their future and giving them all the tools they need to succeed in their work life. But yet we haven't given them the tools to think about personal finance or even professional finance and how do you manage a budget even within the workplace. Um, I'm not right. sure. Well, yeah. when I look back, I'm not sure where it would have come from in college. I have new ideas about that now. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's build on that because you have yourself, you know, earned a doctorate in education. You've been a dean of students and uh, many amazing colleges. So you've worked directly with young people just at the time that they might be different from you. Might be the first time that they've been called on to take that kind of responsibility. And so for many, many, um, you know, college students, I think you and I know that that's what happens. So given your experience as in higher ed, and now, um, in perhaps even in philanthropy, do you actually think that there's a role that higher education or even secondary school education could play in this teaching? You mentioned you have some thoughts now. Do you think there's a role? I do. I do. I think, you know, if we are serious about preparing at the college level and the high, the secondary level, if we're serious about preparing people for their future and to be productive members of society, we have to give them the basic tools to do that even in their personal life. 
Um, and I think about some of the conversations I used to have with college students um, when you know seniors are about to graduate, they're, they're exploring what is their first job going to be. And increasingly over the last 25 years, and in, in the particularly acute now with so many young people graduating with debt, their focus is on how much they're going to make and less about how much they will be aligned with the job. And there's a real, there's a real panic and sense of panic of I've got this debt. How am I going to, you know, and in, in some cases it's, I want a certain lifestyle. And so I need to make a certain amount. And so some of the conversations I would have with students were about the real issue you need to f- focus on right now is finding a job that's meaningful to you and that will pay your bills. Mm-hmm you will build over time and get to, you know, you will grow in your profession, but focusing on the dollar versus a connection, I think in terms of what's meaningful to you and that will help you grow and a job that you like going to um, is one lesson that I think we need to have more of. And I think increasingly colleges are trying to have that conversation with students. But the other piece that I think we fail at is, and and I think you and I have chatted about this before, how do we think about our future? So as a 21-year-old college graduate, are you really thinking about retirement in 50 to 60 years? You're not. And my worst worst financial decision that I have made was in my first job out of college. I I worked at a college and I was given the opportunity to make a contribution to a retirement fund. And had I made a contribution, the college would have matched my contribution. Free money. Free money. But my, I lived on campus, so I had a, a little apartment on campus, and I made $20,000 a year. I had debt from college, and I thought, there's no way I can contribute out of that $20,000 anything to my retirement. So for two years, I contributed nothing. And then I went to graduate school, and then I was in my, another full-time job, and the same opportunity came up. And luckily, that college's human resources office advised me about the benefit of even if you just give this small amount, we're going to match it. And that doubles your, um, and then they, someone walked me through. If I literally did that for you, literally walked me through. Yes. If someone, and then they showed me if I had put a thousand dollars in, in 1991, when I had that opportunity to have that match, the value of my retirement funds, just in that five-year period, how different it would be and how, how much I impacted my ability to grow my retirement over time. Now, luckily, I discovered this lesson early enough that, you know, but I don't think we talk to young people about that. And we certainly don't help young people understand the ramifications of decisions early on because we're not thinking about retirement and we're not right. thinking that about that. completely ridiculous to right. people who are 22 years old. But to me, it's a, it's a, it's an about financial literacy. It's about thinking about your future. And increasingly this generation wants to retire early. So if you're not starting early, you're not, unless you're making a lot of money and investing in other ways, mm-hmm. you're not going to have the retirement. So, and I think that's where colleges and high schools have a responsibility to talk about how do you think about that? And how does how does a little bit of money, because I think was $1,000 enough, is that going to make any difference? Right. Um, you know, in the same way that, you know, my parents taught us, you put a quarter of everything you make into savings. So even as a child, when I was babysitting and I was making $2 an hour, I would put a quarter of what I made into my bank account. And so I had savings. Even if I spent all of the rest of it, it was growing, slowly, but growing. And we don't teach that to young people. So you literally had someone in a career planning role Mm -hmm. uh, and in your 
your professional life and education, those areas may have even may have fallen into your realm of management. I'm not sure what the organization would be, but you know how that can work. And you think that um, we can realistically just collectively as whether we're in personal finance, whether we're in financial advisors or perhaps even I'd like to segue to philanthropy. Do you think there are any, you know, effective ways to keep this conversation going and in the college communities, there's so many, so many demands for resources, of course, and in so many uh, ways. I think the great thing about talking about finances is you can actually go to a workshop, like career services can offer a series of three or four workshops over the course of a year on personal finance. How do you create a a budget, a household budget? Most college students aren't thinking about that. How do you think about saving? How do you, those could be a series of workshops that cost very little because you have almost every college has the resource, right? They have economics professors, they have business right. staff, they have professionals who could do that um, and offer it, offer it. Maybe not every student goes, but to be able to offer that and to say, this is something we think is important to our students, working with faculty to encourage students to attend. You know, those are all things that are very doable and not very expensive. Right. Not a big burden for a college to do. Okay. And I, uh, I'd love to segue to your, your current work, which and it's wonderful to have uh, someone who is in a leadership role and an important foundation on the other scale, on the other side of what we're talking about, actually, you know, making resources work for the benefit of society. And I wonder, uh, and I talk to so many college students, and I know you have too, who actually say they want to have impact. You know, they, they want to have impact. And then what does that mean? And you are right there uh, in the room, you know, where that impact, those impactful decisions are being made in philanthropy. But just love to have your perspective on that work and what drew you to it. And if you see any connection mm-hmm. with this financial literacy education conversation and philanthropy. Well, I've, I've always been interested in philanthropy, but I didn't come from a family with a great deal of wealth, as I had mentioned before. But my parents, and they didn't use the word philanthropy, but very early on, they taught us about no matter how much you have, there is someone who has less. And so as a family, we would every, for example, every Christmas, we would go and choose an angel from the giving tree at the local mall. As a family, we would choose the person that we would be giving the gift to. And then we as a family would go and shop for that. And as we got older and we had, each of us were starting to earn money, we would all contribute to the resources that we had in order to do this. And, and we would we would increase the number of people that we would give things to. And that's something I, my sister and I still do today. We, mm-hmm. we all have different ways, you know, that we adopt a family around the holidays. But we didn't feel like we had a lot. Like I said, we paycheck to paycheck, but there were people that had less. And so I think if we remember that no matter how much we think or how little we think we have, there is something we can do. Um, so that's what I would start. So that when I, when I was making the transition out of higher education and this position came open, it was really appealing to me because it was about doing that within the college sphere. It was in a, mm-hmm. in a space that I loved and in a field that was about giving back, which I really liked. I've always been drawn to mission-centered work. And I've learned a lot about how do people take what they have and, and amplify it for others. Um, you know, My foundation was based on someone who felt that extreme wealth 
could be corrupting and a liability for his children. So while he, while Fletcher Jones uh, provided for his sons quite well in his will, he wanted the bulk of his estate to go into his charitable foundation. Um, and it has grown immensely. And, the, and what it has done is so impactful over the last 45 years um, in a different way than if he had left his $21 million to his right. two sons. Right. Talk about amplifying his values. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and I imagine that, I mean, that's an amazing money story in itself, mm-hmm. how someone's own values, obviously a successful, you know, situation. So having the resources to do it, but how someone can truly create that impact for years and years and years and years beyond their own personal life situation. So understanding, you know, I think you mentioned the word philanthropy. I find that too, that sometimes the word philanthropy is a little off-putting to those of us who may not have the millions and millions, but we have that spirit of, of we want to make an impact. We want to, we want to be generous. Do you ever think that our philanthropy, philanthropic organizations can be helpful as guides for this other conversation about literacy and how money works? Could you ever imagine, maybe not, it's in the, may not be a perfectly matched with your foundation, but could you ever imagine a conversation about philanthropic institutions actually supporting directly financial education? I do. I mean, I think about, I, the word philanthropy is almost from another generation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly the early philanthropists that we think of, Carnegie and Mel, you know, they are names, they were the Gates and the Zuckerbergs of their era. Right. But there were a lot of people in that generation who were philanthropists and were responsible for so much. And I think now, our, this in this current space, we think of people who are philanthropic as literally Gates and Zuckerberg and a handful of other luminaries, Bezos, um, Warren, Buffett, yeah. Warren Buffett, right? The- Warren Buffett, who says, you know, make the giving pledge and those big yes. billionaires. Yes. So these are like billionaires that we're never going to be there. And so, but I don't think it's true that you have to have billions in order to contribute, but we're not doing a good job of helping people understand whether you want to call it philanthropy or giving, general, however you want to refer to it, how do we teach people that there are ways to contribute that is meaningful? And, and I think about at the college level, you know, I, I have always been at work until now, I've always worked at a college and I understand the value of alums giving to their alma mater, no matter how much. Um, and helping people, I would have conversations over and over again with my friends, $20, from you. If each of us gave $20 a year to our alma mater, it makes a huge difference in terms of how, one, it's just, it's a significant amount of money. It doesn't seem like it, but we don't have to be giving $100,000 to have an impact. Yeah, that one might get something named, but our $20 means something to the college. Um, And we don't think about it. We think we have to have a larger impact versus what if 100 people gave $20? That's Sometimes it can feel like a drop in the bucket, you know, right, right. well, how can that really help? Right. And so again, it's that, it's, it's really that education. And am I correct that sometimes foundations are quite interested in the percentage of alumni, alumni who... Absolutely. Absolutely. They, we look at, in, in the college level, we certainly look at our, our alums doing that. It's part of how we rate institutions. But even in, in my space of the philanthropies, 
giving outside of higher education, we're interested in is your entire board contributing to the mission of the organization? Because if your board is not committed, how can we be committed? So we're looking for, and it doesn't have to be large amounts, but is everybody contributing in some way? And I think one of the ways that philanthropy and foundations can help with this is helping people understand how their small gift could be amplified. Mm-hmm. We have focused so much on the big gifts, right? Sponsorship and large things that we forget how to communicate. And I think if we could shift, yes, we're always going to want those big gifts, but how do we shift and and really market our needs to lower level donors? And how can we say, oh, well, if you had five people and came together, there's a, there's a gift, a naming opportunity, or there's a gift, there's a gift category, but because it's just me giving $50 and you gave $50, it means nothing. But what if we had five of us that did that together? It would actually equal one of the sponsorships potentially. Right. That translation is such a, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Which I think is about philanthropy and advancement and fundraising folks rethinking how we approach philanthropy because we seem to have an old school way of thinking. We still need the big donors, but they're always going to be there. We're always going to be able to, how do we reach out to the larger generation that doesn't have that base? One of the things that I like to do when I have the opportunity to talk with young people and we sometimes, you know, help with actual their creation of their budget Mm-hmm. You know, whether uh, whether they're in high school or college or in some transition point. So in that budget, one of the things that we like to suggest is that there is a giving budget uh, amount in that budget, just like there's a savings or paying for your cell phone or whatever it is you're going to pay. Do you, do you think that's too much to ask? I don't. Point? I don't. And in fact, one of my dear, dear friends had a... Um, a plan with their children and they had, and they started very early with their allowance and they had a certain amount of the allowance that was to be saved, a certain amount that was to be used how they wanted to, and a certain amount that was for, for giving. And they were teaching their children from very early age that that should be part of their budget. I mean, like little toddlers. And then the children got to decide where they wanted to give their money. And sometimes it was hard for their parents, my friends, because they didn't always, you know, but that was what they had were trying to instill is their children identifying what's meaningful to them, which developed and grew over time. And I think if we don't budget for it, then it's very hard to find the resources in our budget. Mm-hmm. In the it, same way, if we don't budget for retirement. Right. Right. Great money, money stories. You know, one of the things that uh, I'm interested in, I think you and I've chatted about this before, is whether there are some particular challenges for women in tackling money conversations with themselves, with their significant other, with their families. Do you if you have any advice for women in particular to, uh, as to how to get those conversations started, does does anything come to mind? Well, one, I, I think we're sort of, especially women to women, I think we're kind of often see ourselves in competition. So we don't talk about money things. And I, and I, I wonder if we were more open about salaries, more open about bonuses, more open about challenges, how could we help each other? So I'll use the example of if I got a raise or a promotion, how did I do it could be really bent, like what was going on that allowed me to get that maybe really helpful to you for your opportunity. But we so often see it as there's only one ring to catch. And so I'm not going to share because I want to catch that ring. 
Um, I want that opportunity. So one, we have to sort of break out of, we're not in competition. We are actually in this together and we can learn and support each other. But also those conversations illuminate where the weaknesses are, right? So if we're talking about money and we realize, wait a second, you're only making that, I'm only, you know, vulnerability it's, it's going to illuminate where the weaknesses are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from, from my, my first advice is to get over ourselves and have the conversation because it's hard, right? But say, okay, yes, it's hard. It's not what we normally do, but you, we got to have to push ourselves. Um, I think we also have to sit, you know, like we have to ask for what we don't get. Like if we don't know that we're not paid as much as someone else, we we're not asking, we, we won't know, and we won't know what we are missing out on. We also have to be willing to say we are worth it. I think women often say, well, I'm not, I'm not ready for that promotion yet, or I'm not ready for that job yet, or I'm not. And, and so we don't think to ask, or we don't think to, most men would not say I'm not ready for that opportunity, right? right? They're going to go, I'm going to apply for it. And I get it great if I don't get, you know, so I think we also have to say, I am worthy. I am doing quality work and I'm going to ask for the raise, or I'm going to ask for a new opportunity. I'm going to ask for the title change as opposed to hoping and waiting for it to just happen naturally. Well, Mary, I, I can't imagine a more powerful money story that you've shared beginning in your young life and then your career path, being an educator and making, having the competence that you started developing early and then developing what I'm sensing is now you have the confidence to take on the leadership role in an important institution. I think it's those money stories that help other women to really say, okay, you know, here's someone who's sharing such personal information about her beginning and she's made it through and achieved success. So I really just want to thank you for uh, sharing your money story. And I know it will help so many of our listeners in their own money stories and developing that confidence. So thank you so much for joining in today. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Take care. You too. Want more money stories? Check out my Instagram at Linda Davis Taylor underscore LDT to learn more about the incredible lineup of women on our podcast and share your own money story. Until next time.